You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining us today on Her Money for a special bonus mailbag edition of the show. Every show we produce, we do for our listeners, but that is especially true of these bonus mailbags since we are answering all of your brilliant questions. And today's episode, it's no exception. So many of you wrote into us after our recent episode, number 288, on investing for short and long term goals with investing questions of your own, that we are going to tackle them today with the help of Ryan Victorin. She is a vice president and financial consultant at Fidelity Investments. She works with high net worth individuals and families on retirement planning, legacy planning, tax minimization, investment strategy, and so much more. She is a certified financial planner, a CFP, and when she is not busy advising clients, she spends her time keeping up with her twin boys. That is a lot. Ryan, welcome. Thank you so much. I don't know if I'd use keeping up or just constantly chasing (laughs) is what I would say for those two. Yeah, they are going to be six and it's like living with two tornadoes. That's my life. (laughs) I completely understand. I had two who were six each at one point in their lives. And although they were not six together, I remember it being an exhausting stage. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's just dive in. Okay. Love it. Our first question comes to us from Meg T, and she writes, Hi, Jean. I recently discovered the podcast, and I am loving it. Thank you. I listen to it every single morning on my walk with my dog, and I have a question regarding what to do with liquid funds that I have saved for a down payment on a house. About me. I'm 34 years old. I currently own a condo and have been saving to purchase a house. I'd like to keep my condo as a rental in the future so I won't be able to use the proceeds from the sale toward a new home. I have approximately $30,000 in a high-yield savings account, which I transfer money to each month, separate from my emergency savings account. 
I recently accepted a promotion at work, and because of the change in my pay structure, I need to wait two years before I'm able to use my bonus income to qualify for a home. I'll need that extra income to qualify for anything in the Denver market. Now that I'm pushed out at least two years from purchasing, I'm trying to decide if I should leave the money I've set aside for the house in the high yield savings account or take a portion, say 15,000 of it and invest. If I move a portion into an investment, what type would you recommend? The high yield savings account is currently earning 0.4%. I almost misread that and said 4%, but we're not getting those kind of yields at all. 0.4%, and that's about normal these days. She writes, I wanna do something conservative to protect what I've saved, but I am willing to take a little risk in order to earn more. Any suggestions would be appreciated. What do you think? Oh, this is a tough one, right? And tough only because it's gonna feel like I don't have a super awesome answer that's gonna be more than 0.4 for right now. And unfortunately, 0.4 is pretty good these days. (laughs) And that's what I keep telling my clients too, is like awesome time to borrow. So when you do go to buy that house, you know, those interest rates are gonna be low. Really kind of a tough time to try to generate any kind of interest in the meantime, right? But generally speaking, and this is, you know, gonna be pretty consistent, I think with a lot of the questions we get, or could get, because I'm getting them every single day, is the time horizon or when you really are going to be needing these funds is going to be a huge driver of how much risk you really should take, right? You really want to have every single penny there for you, even if it is two years from now. And so the general rule of thumb is your goal, especially a type of goal like buying a house where you need all of the money, right, two to three years from now, you really don't want to take a whole ton of risk with it, right? Because the last thing you want is two years from now, if we're in the middle of a downturn or a dip in the market, now you don't have that kind of money and you have to wait even longer, right? Versus a longer type of goal like retirement, even if that was a couple years away, you have to get through your whole retirement, right? And so that's a balance between the two. So for now, I would say, keep it where it is. But if something changes in your life where it's not two years away, like it's more like three, five, seven years away, then maybe you could think a little bit more about a little bit of risk on the back end. Can I just ask about one possible alternative, Ryan? Sure. What if she took 10,000 of it and put it into an I-bond? Right? I-bonds are now returning 7.2%. They are perfectly safe. You have to keep the money in for a year. If you take it out before five years, you give up your last three months worth of interest. But even knowing that, if she were to cash it out in two years, it's a safe investment and she'd certainly do a lot better. You have to be comfortable with the idea that you're tying it up for two years. If something comes along within that time horizon, you are not going to be able to act. But yes, it might be a decent alternative, right? It could be. And I think this is the hard part again with like, I'm going to need the money for a purchase and you've got your eye on it now, right? Because even if she's saying, you know, like I got a promotion and I think I'm going to need that extra income to be able to buy something, you know, in lots of different pockets across the country are dealing with this because, you know, real estate is so inflated right now, really across the country, is that sometimes leaning into that liquidity, I totally hear you, is that, you know, kind of the balance as well. 
It certainly is an option if you're like really confident you really won't need it between now and a year or two, right? If you really think you could, that's where it gets a little tricky. But a piece of it for sure, I think is, you know, could lean in that direction. If it turns out that she's interested in I-bonds, people should know that the way to buy those is through a Treasury Direct account. That's pretty much the only way that you can get them, and you buy them directly from the government. But they're all of a sudden pretty attractive. I know. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And they're limited. It's not like you can take as much money as you would put into a 401k, for example, and throw it into an I-bond. You're limited to $10,000 a year in an electronic purchase. If you want to buy an additional $5,000 in a paper purchase, you can do that. But for most people, it's going to be $10,000 per person and done. Hey, why not? That's compelling if you have the time frame. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on. Our next question comes to us from Courtney. She writes, hi, Jean. Thanks for an amazing podcast. It has helped me feel like a more confident investor and really made me think about my long-term goals. Thank you, Courtney, for the very, very nice words. My question, she writes, is about selling investments in a taxable account. My husband and I invested about $100,000 in 2009 into mutual funds when we were just starting out investing. We've held on to them, and they've grown substantially in the last 12 years. We've been thinking about selling them and buying ETFs because we both need to rebalance and because ETFs will be more cost-effective. We don't plan on using the money for another 10 years. So my question is, should we, one, sell it all and potentially take a large tax hit, two, sell it over time to reduce the tax burden over multiple years, or three, just keep it where it is even though we would rather have ETFs? We felt very confident in moving our 401ks from mutual funds to ETFs, but feel less sure about moving money in our taxable account due to the tax ramifications. Thanks in advance for your thoughts. So, Ryan, what do you think? Taxation is complicated. Oh, that's an understatement. Oh, my goodness. And this is a hot topic these days, right? A lot of headlines about a lot of things coming. And this is also really, really common. I talk to my clients about this all the time. The first thing I definitely want to remind her of is the 100000 from March of 2009 until now. You can do some back of the envelope math to know that these are some probably pretty some serious numbers now, right? That grew to, and that's a first very good problem to have, right? <laughs> but a problem nonetheless, right, from a tax perspective. And there are some ripple effects to things like selling the whole thing, right? And, you know, just converting over. Oftentimes my clients are a little torn between do I try to solve one tax problem by creating another tax problem and, you know, making it ongoing. What I will say that most of the time people choose is they want to have a purposeful plan to do it over time and so that you don't have this one huge gain this year, right? Which could actually, you know, without knowing more of like the income levels and, and you know, sitting down and running through some of the numbers could also have other kind of ripple effects in different areas of the tax code or even the tax rate you end up paying. And this is one of the things that's also on the docket to change in a potentially new tax code, though the plane hasn't officially, officially landed on that yet. And so, Oftentimes when I sit down with my clients to do this, I ask, how do you want to work through this, right? And a lot of people have really different 
opinions about it, where they say, of course, I'll pay taxes. I made all this money. I'm thrilled. This is a good problem to have. And some people say, I really do want to spread this out over time. And thinking about it like this is really helpful. You start to say, what is my gain? What would be the taxes owed on that gain? And what percent of my portfolio is the tax bill? And sometimes that's a much smaller number because people think, oh my gosh, I have to pay so much taxes on this big gain. But when you break it down, it might be like five, six, even 8% of the portfolio where people say, depending on a market up or down, people might say, I lost that last week (laughs) or I made that this week, right? From that point of view. And so sometimes when you break it down and I sit down with my clients to hammer out all this math all the time, it can help understand, okay, what is a number you're comfortable with? Maybe you want to do it over three years. Maybe you want to do it over two, right? Maybe you're retiring two years from now and you really want to take it all in two years, right? And so sometimes I say sitting down with someone is really helpful, but that's what I do all the time because you can bounce the ideas off of somebody else. But being really mindful of not only the speed you want to do it, right? But also exactly where you're talking about is what is the destination, And is it a direct conversion into something like a more tax-efficient fund or really trying to be really purposeful of it? What I would say is a mistake that I often see is they make a call on the tax side and then sit in cash and say, okay, now I'll figure it out later. And then all of a sudden a year goes by and they're still in cash and then now they have to try to get back invested again. And so being mindful with the whole picture, not just what you're doing now, but the destination for it, I think is a really good idea. Let me ask about one other thing that she raised in this letter. The idea that ETFs, exchange-traded funds, are more cost-effective than mutual funds. Yes. They're typically lower fee, right? Yeah. And they're typically more tax-efficient. Yes. But can you sort of underscore who should be an ETF buyer and who should be a mutual fund buyer? Ooh, it really depends on how you believe in terms of certain philosophies of investing, right? Because most people think of mutual funds as what's called actively managed, right? You're hiring the manager to try to do better than a particular part of the market, stock or bond, international, domestic, right? And so the idea is, you're paying for their professional service to try to outperform, right? So it costs more versus an ETF or another version of a mutual fund that people think of as well is called an index fund. They're both of what's called passively managed, right? So people say, I don't want to pay the extra fee to try to beat the market. If you can't beat them, join them is kind of the idea. And it's also much less expensive to do something like that. So it's true that they are less expensive. It's true that they can be more tax efficient, but it also kind of lends itself to the type of philosophy and what you believe in as an investor, right? And it also depends on the account type that you're in. So sometimes people say, I'm going to, in my retirement account, where I don't have to worry about taxes, that's where I'm going to lean into my mutual funds that I are my beloved, right, (laughs) for what they've loved for a long time. And maybe in my regular account that is a non-retirement account is where I lean into the more tax-efficient vehicles we've been talking about. So it's a broader conversation. And just one more follow-up on that. When we talk about the tax efficiencies, can you just explain why they're more tax efficient? 
Yes. So everybody's tax situation is different, right? We always underscore that. And everybody should talk to a tax professional about their tax situation. But generally speaking, going back to what I said before for the difference between what's called actively managed or passively managed, when there's portfolio manager or management team trying to outperform any parts of the market, as you can imagine, they're in there making changes, right? They're trying to do their thing. That's what you're paying them for, right? But with the index funds or the ETFs, there may not be as much what we call turnover. And that doesn't create as much of those changes, which can trigger those tax events. And so that's really the fundamental difference between the two. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobier. I'm the co-host of MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with Ryan Victorin. Our next question is from Tara. She writes, Hi, Jean. First, thanks for all of your smart advice and for helping women everywhere to become more knowledgeable with their finances. I'm 45 years old, single, living in northern New Jersey, and most recently in a comfortable place to buy my first property, a condo, nine months ago. It took me nearly 10 years to save for the 20% down payment on my home, but I am so happy I did and proud of that accomplishment, as you should be, by the way, Tara. That's a big, big deal. I am doing well with an annual salary of $180,000, a 401k balance of $529,000, a Roth of $44,000, and $60,000 in cash, which is my one-year emergency fund. I also have about $160,000 of equity in my home. The only debts I have are a mortgage of $405,000 at 2.875% and a car loan of $16,000 at 0%. I find myself in a place of not knowing what to do next with my money. After all monthly expenses and some fun travel, shopping, yoga, I have about a thousand to a thousand and a half on average to further invest each month. I initially thought I would pay on my mortgage so that it's paid off by the time I retire, but now I'm thinking that's not the most optimal step. 
My next thoughts are to invest in something with a higher return, but I'm not sure if I should do a traditional IRA, ETFs, stocks, all three. I need to mention that going the stock market route makes me nervous. I can afford the risk, but at 45, I feel maybe I should be moderate with my investments. What do you think? Well, first of all, I just want to say, Tara, I just turned 57, so at 45, I think you are incredibly young and have all the time in the world. But I do get why the stock market makes you nervous, particularly because it's been on such a run for such a long time. This is such a great problem to have, not knowing what you want to do with this free cash that you're sitting with every single month. Ryan, what do you think? Well, first, I think, man, I'm impressed by Tara, right? With this, she's got ducks in a row and I love it, right? So she's got a really, really solid foundation to everything she's built so far. And this is also a really common thing that people say, I want to invest, but I don't, I know that I'm saving for retirement, but I'm sort of investing just to invest, not for like sort of that middle ground, right? And so you want to start to think about, are there things you potentially want to accomplish with this upcoming money that you're about to be able to save this surplus above your emergency fund, right? And I totally agree with Jean too, that you are quite young, right? And have a long time in terms of, especially if that money is just sort of for the future, to be able to say, time-wise, you probably could afford some sort of a risk because there's a bunch of questions in there, right? Should I pay off my debt? Should I invest for the future? And, you know, when someone like me hears a rate of something like two point, I think it was 875, there's a quantitative answer where you start to say, if you do start to invest, especially if it's for the future, I love the idea of going beyond just paying down debt and investing in something that has the potential to grow, especially if people think of outpacing an interest rate that's so low on their mortgage. But I also often talk to my clients about there is a qualitative aspect to paying down debt and just being like, I am done. I own this house. You know, nobody else does, <laughs> just me, not me in a bank. And so making those projections out to say, you know, really, what's that middle ground of what you're comfortable with, of being done with debt by the time you're retired? Also, the other thing that I start to say is it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Maybe it's a little bit of both right? To the degree that you're comfortable with. And what's nice about a major shift, and I'm sure you'd agree, Gene, in the industry is that it used to take a lot of money to start to have to invest. And now it can be like as little as $50 to, you know, get into some of those ETFs or mutual funds we were talking about before, right? Even lower than that sometimes. But I also think that saving into that IRA is a great idea, Sometimes an HSA, which is what's called a health savings account, is also a fabulous idea. And realizing that you have a bunch of options, I totally agree with Jean. It's a great problem to have of knowing it feels like a problem, but it's excellent. You've done a really, really good job so far, Tara. Yeah. And the only thing I would add to that is even though you're really young and you are really young, it's not too early to make a bucket list. It's not too early to start thinking about what are those things that I think I want to do in the future. Do you want to go to Africa? Do you want to go on a safari? Do you want to buy a second home? Do you want to start a business? Do you want to dabble in crypto? I don't know. And all of these things can go on your list. And sometimes just having the list can help direct you 
a little bit more when it comes to what to do with the money. It gives a natural time horizon too sometimes, right? Like I want to be able to buy that second house in 10 years or just have a bigger pile, right? Or I want to be more charitably inclined now, right? You know, whatever it is, right? Thinking through that bucket list. And again, what a fun game, creating a list of fun stuff you want to do. Exactly. Fun stuff with your free cash. Exactly. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. She writes, hi, Jean and team. I'm so confused about exactly how much I should have saved for retirement. I know there are the retirement benchmarks, which I've done my best to follow, but so much of whether or not your money truly lasts comes down to how long you live, how you draw down your assets, and what some of your unexpected retirement expenses might be. And that's what has me worried. It's impossible to predict those unexpected things or my exact lifespan. And I'm worried that even with a good financial advisor in my corner, I might spend too much or spend in a way that's not as tax advantaged as it should be. So I guess my question is more technically of a spending question than it is a saving question. But in my mind, all these things are related. After I've taken the good steps to save and invest my money to grow so I'm prepared for retirement, How do I determine how to A, make it last, and B, draw it down to be some kind of replacement paycheck once I retire? Thank you so much. You know, what I think is so interesting about this question is that she has really keyed into the spending issue in a way that a lot of people don't. We talk about the benchmarks all the time. And for those of you who are not familiar with them, the benchmarks state that you should have one times your salary put away by the time you're 30, three times by the time you're 40, six times by the time you're 50, eight times by the time you're 60, and 10 times by the time you actually retire. And those benchmarks were developed for people who earn between $50,000 a year and $300,000 a year. And when combined with Social Security, they are designed to help you replace about 80-ish percent of your pre-retirement income for 30 years. But you're right, they don't help you with the question of how much you're actually going to spend. And I think it can be freeing for a retiree to figure out what your fixed expenses actually are going to look like in retirement. Not the ones that you want to make, but the ones that you have to make. What's it going to cost to keep a roof over my head, a car in my garage, food on the table, and make my health care premium payments, pay for Medicare? What are all those things likely to cost? And how much of that will Social Security cover? How much of a gap will there be? And then do exactly what you're saying. Cover that with some sort of a replacement paycheck, which usually comes in the form of an annuity of some sort, where you take a chunk of your savings, a chunk of your retirement stash, and you convert it into a paycheck. And we're going to hear a lot more about annuities in the coming years because they're starting to make their way into 401k plans. So they are coming and they're about to be front and center. But I'm wondering, Ryan, what you think? Oh, well, first of all, this topic could be a whole podcast. (laughs) 
I love this so much, right? But at the same time, it's a really, really good question. My clients ask me all the time, like, what's my number? What's the thing I should have? Or And they actually get very caught up on those benchmarks, which while they're guided, they're not personalized, right? For absolutely everybody. And so what I always say is it totally depends on what you're spending. So sitting down and actually figuring that out with no judgment or guilt or any sort of feelings about it, but sitting down and saying, these are my expenses. And we usually distinguish them between essential expenses versus discretionary spending, right? What I talk through is what are the non-negotiables and what are the negotiables, right? What are the things that, to Jean's point, you really can't live without? And what are the things that you could live without if you had to? We want to try to avoid that scenario, but really, what are they? And then you take a look at, okay, so those are the things going out. Those are the expenses. Then you start to take a look at all of the income sources that are available to you, right? Some people have pensions. To your point, Gene, some people have annuities, social security. And then you figure out what's the gap between those two. And then on top of that, you think, okay, how do I fill the gap? What's the most efficient way from a tax perspective, from a cost perspective, from a sequence of when you take it out perspective, how do I fill the gap? Given these different timeframes of when you're actually thinking of retiring as well, when are things that are going to be forced for you to do? Something called minimum required distributions, where the IRS says, my turn, start to take (laughs) some money out of this account at 72 years old. So the picture shifts over time, right? And I also often sit down with clients who, another thing I heard in this question, where they say, I don't know if I believe you. Once I do all of these projections, so many things can happen, right? It's just not this linear type of line. So we tend to be, especially when we do you know, longer term financial projections, pretty conservative with what can kind of go wrong right? Is it long-term care or a higher health need? Or let's say it's a spouse where one person needs some care early and another one lives really long, right? So when you kind of model through some of those scenarios to really say like, let's beat it up, let's beat this plan up and then see like stress test it, right? And you kind of get through that. Then you start to think through, okay, everything you've needed up until this point is like save your money and grow your money. Right. And sounds like she's done a great job of doing that. But then it shifts to how do I make sure I recreate that paycheck and try to generate income off of the portfolio, too? You've never needed to up until now, but now you do. And again, like I said before, same for when we answered the question for someone who's trying to generate interest on their savings account. It's kind of a hard time to generate income right now. And that shifts over time as well. So having an understanding about what those Income sources are, could be an annuity like you talked about, dividends, interest off of portfolio. That's a whole dynamic that creates a whole new income allocation as opposed to just an asset allocation like stocks, bonds, and cash. And this is what I talk about every day (laughs) with clients. And I think you're right. I think it should be a whole podcast. So we'll just put that on the list. We're just going to put that on the list. Absolutely. (laughs) Our last question comes from Maricela. She writes, hey, Jean, I've been listening to your podcast for a week, really binge listening. I'm so excited that I've shared the information with the women in my life, including my 13-year-old daughter who has to listen to the podcast while we are in the car. Thank you for sharing with us all this wonderful information. 
I am 43 years old and I'm the sole financial provider for my daughter whose father passed away three years ago. We live in the Bay Area in Northern California and made the move four years ago to move in with my parents who've been a godsend in helping me care for my daughter during these times. With this move, I've been able to pay off my debt, credit cards, student loans, and car loan. My credit score is currently at 810. That's amazing. I have just received a raise and decided to up my 401k contribution to 16% with a 3% employer match. My goal right now is to buy a house for my daughter and me. This is something we both really want. I'm worried that even though interest rates are low right now, this may not be the time for me financially to do this. Here are my numbers. My current 401k is 42,000. Other retirement accounts through prior employers, $43,000 at Transamerica, $25,000 at Vanguard, $14,000 at TIAA CREF, $5,000 at Principal, and an emergency account of $4,500. My current gross annual income is $7,200, and I have in my checking account $20,000 to use for a down payment. Here are my two questions. Should I leave all my retirement accounts as they are or should I roll them into something? If so, what? More importantly, I'm wondering if I should just keep saving for a higher down payment or look for a property that I can afford with just the $20,000. I'm not sure if I should move that $20,000 into a high yield savings account or where I should put it while I wait to find a property for another year or two. I'm a first time buyer. Your guidance would be greatly appreciated as I feel like I don't make enough and don't have enough saved and this worries me. Thank you so much for your time. So Ryan, before I hand this one off to you, first of all, I just wanna say you've been through a lot, Maricela. I mean, I'm so sorry about the loss of your husband, but you have been through a lot and you have picked yourself up and you've taken care of your daughter and you've pulled it together in a really remarkable way. And so feeling like you don't have enough, you're not doing enough, I want you to go easier on yourself. I think you're doing an amazing job. And so let's just put those feelings of inadequacy off to the side because I just, I'm reading your letter and I know that they're not true. The data is right here in front of me and you are doing a good, good job. The second thing that I wanna say is that particularly because you're a first-time home buyer, you don't necessarily need a 20% down payment. You could buy a home probably with that $20,000, depending on the market that you're looking at and depending at the properties that you're looking at. You should definitely start looking at properties and see what sort of a mortgage you can qualify for. And that'll give you the information that you need to know if now is the time or if you should table it for a year or two. But I do think you can simplify your financial life a bit by rolling all of these accounts together. And I'm gonna ask Ryan to weigh in on this. I would be spinning my wheels trying to keep my portfolio in balance if I had this many accounts. Oh my gosh. First of all, I couldn't agree more with Jean to say that you don't have enough or anything like that. Again, feeling it's easier said than done, but like you've sort of got 
handed a raw deal for what you went through and are still going through, right, in all likelihood. But you made the right call for, you know, moving back in with your parents. And I love, you know, hearing things like no credit card debt, all my debts are paid off. You're like, just a I want to just like clap in the background, right, for you, right? It's just doing a really, really, really good job and looking out for you and for her. But given that, simplify for sure was the big thing. If you didn't ask the question, I would have told you, right, to, you know, really kind of think through consolidating and exactly to use Jean's words is what we usually call is rolling over old plans where you no longer work at those companies. Absolutely to just make investing those pieces easier. Sometimes it can be more cost effective because they're all in one spot versus in a bunch of different places, but also just to try to have your eyes in just one area, we want to remove things off of your plate as opposed to keep so many things on your plate when it's really on your shoulders to take care of you and your daughter. So absolutely consolidating and usually what it is is an IRA or rollover IRA is what you end up with. So that's the first part is as much as you can simplify, that's great. But the second part too about, you know, what should I do with this 20,000? And I agree with Jean completely. It's never too early to start searching, right? Just to get a real sense of what area of the country you want to be in. Do you want to stay closer to mom and dad? And those types of numbers that you've been talking about and understanding how the real estate market really translates to those numbers could give you a time frame of to say, is it a year from now? And if it's three years from now, five years from now, that's still okay. That's still totally fine. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of people feel like real estate is a little hard to attain right now just because of everything going on. But at the same time, it doesn't mean it's never going to happen. And it's okay if it's a little farther away. But to get a pulse of really where you might end up and what it is, is going to lead to that natural time horizon like we're talking about before. And if you can find a high yield savings account, which we've already talked about, like 04 is a high yield savings account potentially, but it's better than zero, could also be an option. And some of those other options we discussed before on the earlier questions might even be available to you as well. So I agree with Gene, simplify and also start the research. And, and it might give you a little bit of a guide for when you can start. Good luck with that and let us know how it goes. And Ryan, thank you so much for doing this with me today. You're fantastic. You're really, really easy to understand when it comes to money and investing. And I don't say that to a lot of people. Oh, thank you, G. I'm so privileged to be here. And I love these listeners. I'm like, these ladies are on the ball. They're organized. I love it. So I'm happy to be here. We love our listeners. Anyway, I want to thank all of you who are listening for joining me today on Her Money. Again, thanks to Ryan Victorin for her wisdom and advice. I hope that you had your questions answered. Maybe you learned a little something that you didn't know that you even needed to hear. You are always welcome to write to us with your questions at mailbag at hermoney.com. And if you join our private Her Money Facebook group, you'll see that we're often on the lookout for your questions there too. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.